still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. This episode deals with the murder of a child. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 2, Episode 8 Adam, September 2001 The events of September 2001 are indelibly inked onto the memories of everyone who was alive at the time. For those who witnessed the dreadful events of the 11th and saw the harrowing images of the World Trade Center being deliberately flown into by passenger-carrying aeroplanes and the identical attack on the Pentagon, will never forget the feeling of absolute dread from watching history unfold and thousands of people dying. It marked a very dark turn to the start of the 21st century and would presage the deaths of millions in the wars and terrorism that followed. There is much that can be said about the attacks, the invasion and the decisions made in the White House, Downing Street and the plethora of parliaments who backed the motion to evade Iraq and Afghanistan. And the history books will be written and rewritten many times as currently sealed files eventually make it into the light of public scrutiny. For us, however, we must turn our attention to a case that was almost lost in the outcry, confusion and unprecedented coverage given to 9-11. At 4pm on the afternoon of Friday the 21st of September, Adam Mintner was crossing the iconic Tower Bridge in London when he spotted an object floating in the Thames. At first Mr Minter believed it to be a stained barrel or a mannequin, but as the object came closer to the bridge, he was able to see that it was in fact the body of a young child. Mr Minter could also tell that the body had been mutilated. When the police retrieved the body from the water, it became apparent that the child was a young boy dressed only in orange shorts. His head, arms and legs had been removed his body washed and then placed into the Thames. As there was absolutely no way of immediately identifying the poor child, detectives leading the case took the unprecedented step of naming him Adam. His murder remains unsolved, and it is one of the most disturbing murders ever committed in the UK. After the police took the body to their base in Wapping, the body was then transferred to hospital for a full forensic examination. The post-mortem was conducted by Home Office accredited pathologist Dr Michael Heath. Dr Heath found that the child had bruising around his throat and he had a deep incision across it. The cut across his throat was deep enough and done with a knife sharp enough to slice through the voice box. 
This wound was deep enough and wide enough for the almost complete exsanguination of the boy. There had then been an amount of skinning of the limbs at the top of the thighs and upper arms. The limbs had then been removed by someone familiar with the process of disarticulating a corpse. The process has been described as being expertly done. Some of the flesh was removed from the thighs and upper arms, which exposed the bones. Those were then cleaved away from the body. A similar process of skinning and defleshing had occurred on the child's neck prior to his decapitation. His head, arms and legs have never been recovered. When he was pulled from the Thames, Adam had been wearing a pair of orange shorts designed for a girl. These shorts had been bought in a Woolworths in Germany. A striking feature was that the shorts had no blood stains on them at all, indicating that they had been placed on the body some 24 hours after he had been murdered. This is a curious act. Adam had been strangled, his throat slit, his body drained of blood, and the day after his murder, someone deliberately placed a pair of girl shorts on him prior to placing him in the Thames. This has been a source of speculation about the motives and meanings behind the shorts, as we'll see later. As part of the post-mortem procedure, Dr Heath ordered a full toxicological report. The results showed that the boy had been given either an extract of the calabar bean or a partial bean. The result would have been a creeping paralysis that eventually led to a deeply unpleasant death. The calabar bean is the seed of the leguminous plant Physostigma venenosum. Native to tropical Africa, the plant is a large herbaceous perennial with a climbing habit. It can reach heights of up to 50 feet or 15 meters and produces bunches of flowers that appear somewhat like a mixture between a runner bean and a wisteria. The seed pod is around 6 inches or 15 centimeters in length and contains usually two large brown seeds. It also has the folk name of the ordeal bean and in a historical context had been used as a weapon against witchcraft by those who were accusing someone of being a witch. In the UK we have our minds muddled about witches. We are bought up with them being the childish image of a green-skinned hag with a hook nose, raggedy clothes, a tall pointy hat, a flying besom, that's the proper name for their broom, and a familiar in the form of a black cat. Although a resurrected tradition in the UK and Ireland, with covens operating widely across both countries, the Wiccan faith is a modern creation using testimonials taken from the period of the Inquisition and the reign of terror perpetrated by Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins. A primary source for the models of the modern movement is the Malleus Maleficarum, or Witch's Hammer, which was first published in 1487. As fascinating as the subject is, European witchcraft is quite different from African witchcraft, and even then the various regions of that enormous continent are quite different in their practices and rituals. The discovery of the use of poison from a select tropical plant from Africa was a big clue to the reason for the death of this poor child, and yet there seems to have been a great deal of confusion about the origin of the ritual behind his death. At first, his place of origin was unknown, so the Metropolitan Police 
conducted a search of the database of missing children without any success. Nobody had reported the child missing. No schools had reported a child not attending school. The Metropolitan Police then requested help from their European colleagues. And to everyone's surprise, they had the same unfortunate, fruitless result. As there was no identifying marks on the child, all the police had was the evidence presented with the body. They faced several problems with their investigation. Adam had been in the water between one and ten days, during which time any exterior forensic clues had been washed away, and his examination had removed the blood, meaning that a lot of the forensic information in relation to the presence of antibodies had been lost. These are useful for determining any past infections or illnesses the child may have had. Aside from the full DNA profile, which is useful for positively identifying him, it was almost useless without a further clue to his identity. There were several notable features found during the autopsy that proved to be tantalising clues about the child and his death. One of the things they discovered was that Adam had an enlarged pancreas, but no indication as to the reason for the enlargement. They were also able to identify that he had been given an over-the-counter medicine for suppressing coughs. Nothing particularly unusual in that, in and of itself, but as the police came closer to identifying him, it became more of a riddle. In his intestines were found traces of various organic and inorganic materials that indicated that he had been part of a magico-religious ceremony. Light was gradually being shone on the nature of this terrible death. It was far from the all-too-familiar domestic murder of a child and disposal of the corpse in a river. This indicated that everything about the death had been a carefully planned and undertaken procedure. Human sacrifice is an incredibly rare event in modern England, thankfully. The investigation was led by Detective Inspector Will O'Reilly, who, with the help of forensic scientist Ray Fish, reviewed the post-mortem notes and made the decision to undertake a series of tests that are more commonly used in archaeology. O'Reilly and Fish called on the expertise of Professor Ken Pye, a forensic geologist at Royal Holloway, University of London. Ray Fish had found scientific papers that indicated that there was good evidence to suggest that we are literally what we eat. And if food hasn't been transported vast distances, the trace elements in the soil would have been ingested. These trace elements enter the food chain simply by plants growing in the soil. The soil is made up of all manner of compounds, including bedrock and water from the local aquifer or water table and these would have contained the dissolved salts. The investigation team decided to try to identify what traces were left in Adam by his diet. So the decision was taken to screen Adam's isotopes to see if they could develop a picture of where he came from. To identify where Adam came from, the team screened samples of Adam's bones. In particular, they focused on strontium isotopes as these are fairly robust and remain unchanged from the soil to the plant to the livestock and eventual consumption by a human. These isotopes would end up in the skeleton and with the expertise of Professor Pye, 
police were soon able to rule out several options for Adam's place of origin, including London and the Caribbean. An isotope is a slightly different version of an atom that has either more or fewer neutrons. They are essentially slight variations of the element as shown in the periodic table. Each element in the periodic table is actually a group of variants of that element. Some are very stable and remain as the original element. Others are more reactive and change into a different element. Carbon-14, the isotope used for assessing the age of organic material in the archaeological fields, decays to a version of nitrogen, for example. The focus was on strontium, element 38 in the periodic table. The website ptable.com describes strontium as, quote, It occurs naturally mainly in the minerals celestine and strontianite, and is mined mostly from the first two of these. While natural strontium is stable, the synthetic 90SR isotope is radioactive and is one of the most dangerous components of nuclear fallout, as strontium is absorbed by the body in a similar manner to calcium. Natural stable strontium, on the other hand, is not hazardous to health. End quote. The strontium takes its name from the village in Scotland where it was first discovered, strontian. The strontium they discovered in Adam's remains were, however, not from Scotland. Instead, they found that the diet of Adam's short life all came from an area of southwestern Nigeria and that he had been in the UK for around three months before his murder. It was quite an alarming discovery. Adam had been, it seems, smuggled into the UK for the sole purpose of being a human sacrifice. The absence of a missing child was now fully understood. The results were not as precise as the team needed. The isotopes they had screened for produced quite a large area of Nigeria, so the police took the unusual step of going to Africa and spending weeks collecting bone samples from animals and people to allow for a much finer picture of the isotope makeup of the child victim. Eventually, they were able to narrow down the area of Adam's origin to a stretch of land near to Benin City. Nigeria and Benin have both suffered from the imposition of British colonial rule in the 19th century. The initial British contact with the Kingdom of Benin in 1896, when acting consul General James Phillips attacked the city because they requested him to wait for preparations to be made for a formal reception. This attempted attack by the British left all but two of the people in the British Expeditionary Force dead. In the following year, 1897, a British military force led by Admiral Sir Harry Rawlinson stormed the city, killing the king and occupying the land. The people of the region were widely known as slave traders, taking people from the surrounding countryside and countries and then selling them to Arab traders. The British were supposedly attempting to force them to end the trade and their practice of ritual human sacrifice by crucifixion. Such was the number of the sacrifices that were made in Benin City that it was often noted that the city perpetually smelled of decaying flesh. Investigators were able to narrow down the ethnic background of Adam to the Yoruba people. 
They are one of the largest ethnic groups in Africa and represent 21% of the population of Nigeria. Their religion is a diverse array of immortal beings and spirits who formed the land from the primordial waters that covered the earth and then populated it with humans. It is a polytheistic faith with an estimated global following of 100 million people. Many people have adopted an Abrahamic religion as a cultural choice rather than the complete religious philosophy, with people marking the important events in several faiths. Despite their efforts, the police team could find no records of a child who matched Adam's description in Benin or Nigeria as missing. They needed to get the message across to the whole continent that they were searching for a missing child, so they made the decision to fly to South Africa and enrol the help of the then Prime Minister of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. If anywhere, even in the remotest village of our continent, there is a family missing a son of that age, who might have disappeared around that time, 21st September 2001, please contact the police in London I wish to repeat my appeal to all people across the world and specifically in Africa to come forward and help her bring to justice the killers of this young boy. During their visits to South Africa, the Metropolitan Police also met with the Special Occult Unit of the SAPS, the South African Police Service. They met to take advice about the killing, to take their opinion on possible motives about the murder and look for meanings possibly held by the body. The video appeal they made was broadcast across Africa and translated into tribal languages, including the Yoruba dialect. Their appeal failed to raise any leads and it is from this point on that Adam's killing began to be called a Muti killing. Muti is a term for traditional magico-religious medicine in South Africa. The practice extends as far north as Lake Tanganyika. A muti killing, more correctly called a medicine murder, is where a person is murdered for their body parts. This isn't the same as ritual killings, where the death of a person is the primary objective and the goal of the offering, but so that human body parts can be obtained for use in traditional medicines. There is a problem with this, though. Whilst Adam had clearly been disarticulated by someone with a lot of practice in dismembering people, with limbs known to be of economic value being removed, there seems to have been an overlooked element in the practices of that particular area of the world. That area of southwestern Nigeria and Benin is also populated by the Fon peoples. That's spelled F-O-N. Although there are some who have converted to the Abrahamic religions, most of the Fon people have resisted the conversion, and although many of the priests and priestesses have reinterpreted some of the Abrahamic faiths into their own cosmogonic schemes, it has resulted in a syncretism between the beliefs rather than an abandonment of their old ways. And their old ways conjure very evocative images, as their chief religion is called Voodoo's, Voodon, or Voodoo. Voodoo is well recognised as a religion that uses blood rites extensively, dependent on the practitioner and purpose of the ritual. Exsanguination is a feature of both Voodoo and Muti, 
and again there are different reasons for that. In Muti killings, it is understood that on occasion, the skull of the victim is used as a bowl to contain their blood, which is then drank by those required to do so as part of the ritual. One of the reasons given for this is that the power, or energy, of the victim is then taken in by the drinkers to fortify them in whatever endeavour they are attempting to achieve via the use of supernatural entities. The blood and body parts of a child, an innocent, are said to be even more powerful. It is the repetition of Adam's death as a mooty killing which I believe has led to a lack of leads. Adam's body was dressed and then deliberately placed in the River Thames as an offering. It wasn't merely dumping the body. Whilst the removal of the limbs and head are in line with elements of the South African faiths, the poison would have rendered Adam's blood undrinkable. However, it is likely that the levels of poison in his system were such that anyone consuming it would have felt some minor effects, with the resultant psychotropic changes brought on by the chemicals in his blood being, doubtless, ascribed special religious meaning. What was clear was that no one responded to the appeals and that Adam had arrived in the UK months before his awful murder. Home Office Records could account for every child from that region who had entered the UK in the correct fashion and time frame. Adam had been illegally smuggled into the country, it seems for the sole purpose of the ritual killing. The case seemed to stagger to a halt for a while and was gradually lost amongst the chatter of war and domestic political squabbles. The case would remain in a state of limbo for the next 10 years. In March 2011, an ITV crew tracked down a woman who claimed to have looked after the boy in Germany following his parents' deportation back to Nigeria. The child was, she claimed, called Ikpomwosa. The woman, Joyce Asayagedi, said that she had handed the six-year-old to a man called Bawa, who then took the child to London. Joyce Asayagedi had a photograph that she said was of the boy. This image was subsequently used across the press to claim that the child had been identified. That wasn't the case. In February 2013, the BBC was contacted by Osiige, who declared that she was prepared to tell them everything she knew about the boy. Osiagade revealed that Adam's real name was in fact Patrick Erha, and not Ekpomwosa. The child in the photograph turned out to be a living relative of the woman. Police were interested enough in the story she told to mount surveillance on her. From watching her movements and connections, police were led to a man called Kingsley Ojo. Police were sufficiently suspicious of Ojo that they arrested him and searched his property. Amongst his possessions were a number of ritual items. This isn't particularly surprising. Ethnographic artefacts are a popular branch of the antiques and collectible markets. Their power transformed into curios and objets d'art to grace the sideboards and shelves of the affluent. All of the ritual items held by Ojo were tested for DNA, but none of the traces they found were Adam's. Ojo was eventually convicted of child trafficking and sentenced to a rather short four years of detention. There had been an earlier link to Germany with this case too. In 2002, a woman had arrived in the UK 
claiming to have escaped a Yoruba cult that practiced ritual murder. They had, she claimed, attempted to kill her child. This caused her to flee Germany. Police subsequently searched a property relating to the woman and discovered a pair of orange shorts identical to those that had been placed on Adam. The shorts were a bit of a dead end. They came from a German retail chain and as she had a child, buying him shorts, albeit girls' ones, because of the colour of them is not beyond a possibility. The woman was later deported from the UK. The information that the occult unit of the SAPS had given the Metropolitan Police suggested that the shorts the poor child was wearing had some special significance. They said that red was a colour used to placate and appease the gods when these sacrifices were made. It's an interesting point, but I can't help but feel that if someone were to go to the trouble and expense of arranging for a small child to be part of the magico-religious sacrificial ritual, or rite, that a mistake as significant as using orange rather than red would show a level of incompetence or lack of awareness of the killers. I believe it is more likely that the shorts were placed onto his body by someone who knew the child, possibly a parent, relative or guardian who wanted, in some confused way, to respect him by covering his genitals. Aside from his limbs and head being removed, Adam was relatively unmutilated. His genitals, which in some places would carry an extraordinary weight of magical importance and distastefully fiscal worth, were left as they would have been when he was alive. It's also interesting to note that he was also circumcised. The placing of the clothes back on the body at least 24 hours after his murder is an extraordinary move and obviously carried some weight of meaning in some way. Placing a votive in water is a direct appeal to the supernatural forces to complete the spell or aid the practitioners. It has a long history with humans, and even in supposedly sophisticated societies in the West, votive offerings are placed. But as the pagan traditions of the peoples have been effectively lost by the cultural repression of those old faiths by the newer Abrahamic faiths, they became transformed into the blandly inoffensive term wishing well it is still making an offering to some invisible higher power by way of a votive. Placing his remains in the river is an enormous votive. The torso was never meant to be recovered, and the use of the Thames seems to have been a deliberate decision as it would take it far out to the English Channel. The Thames is a busy working waterway, not just the parts around the capital, but it extends as a navigable waterway for quite large vessels all the way inland to Lechlade in Gloucestershire, which is on the Oxfordshire-Wiltshire border. Theoretically, Adam could have been placed at any point along the river, although it is likely that his body was placed in the Thames below the final canal lock at Kingston-upon-Thames. Given that there is a period of time between Adam being killed and his body being placed in the Thames, supposed to be at least 24 hours, it is possible that the people who are responsible for killing him are from the metropolitan areas with significant communities that stem from or have strong ties with Nigeria or Benin. There are more than a million people with Nigerian heritage in London, with their communities based around the Thames, with Greenwich, Bexley and Havering having the largest percentage of people born either in Nigeria or with familial ties to Nigeria. London is a favourite with wealthy Nigerians 
who regularly come to London to spend large amounts of money on property or possessions in upmarket retail establishments. Adverts calling for people who speak Yoruba fluently are often seen ahead of the seasonal influx to assist with their purchases and day-to-day -day affairs. The link to a sacrificial cult is also shown in the other items found in Adam's lower intestine. There were traces of some crushed bone, which was recovered and later identified as being the remains of an animal. Clay pellets, impregnated with gold and quartz, were also found in his lower intestine. These inedible items had been given to a child who had been smuggled into the UK, then starved, poisoned and finally slaughtered for a belief in the supernatural. This case raises some absolutely terrifying possibilities. It is known that in 2001, there was a human sacrificial cult operating in the UK. The police have said that they hope the press coverage of the case was enough to prevent the cult from operating. But it seems more likely that the cult didn't stop or change their practices, but have become more secretive about their activities. People smuggling is a terrible blight on modern society. It preys on the weak and most vulnerable for financial exploitation whilst placing their lives at risk and causing problems in the countries into which the people are smuggled. It is also known that there are some vile members of society who abduct children and traffic them for the purposes of sexual exploitation. It's hardly a great leap of logic to assume that the sort of moral reprobate who would kidnap a child for paedophiles would refuse the opportunity to sell a child for a religious ceremony. What we do know is that there is either a Babaleo, the father of mysteries, as a Yoruba priest is called, or a congregational church based around the Yoruba faiths that have taken a lot of donations towards a special ceremony, not necessarily with everyone's knowledge that the priest is planning on murdering a child for the sake of the faith. The whereabouts of Adam's missing limbs and head are also of great concern. It is speculated that they may have been broken down further and prepared to become religious items for people and churches. Such body parts would be highly valuable and strictly off limits to all but the wealthiest of adherents. What police really need is for someone from within the Yoruba or Fon communities to come forward and to help bring the killers of this poor child to justice. It is possible that the priest or priestess who conducted the ritual flew into London for a brief while before returning to Nigeria or Benin or travelled on to a different part of the world. It's an uncomfortable reality to face that there is evidence of human sacrificial cults operating in the UK in the 21st century. Somehow this hasn't produced the outrage I would have expected. We saw widespread pain and anger when notorious paedophile and suspected necrophile Jimmy Savile was unmasked, and the subsequent outpouring of victims, outrage from the press and people. But when it comes to a small African boy who was smuggled into the country and murdered for the sake of supernaturalism in our capital, there is surprisingly little. I'm all for cultural diversity. I believe we can all bring different abilities, beliefs and behaviours to the table. 
but when it comes to the exploitation of children for fiscal or psychosexual gratification or as a prop in a magic ceremony, then I am at my limit. Someone in the South London Nigerian community knows about this boy and his cruel death. As a society, we should not be tolerating human sacrifice, and even though it is good to acknowledge and respect the various cultures, traditions and faiths in our pluralistic society, when harm is being done by those elements of the incoming cultures, then they must be eliminated by the use of education, integration and, when necessary, legal intervention. In this instance, the answer lies within the Nigerian community in London. Within the records of the Home Office, there should be a name or names of high-status priests or priestesses, as well as those members of the Yoruba and Fon diaspora who have enough wealth and influence to be able to finance such a monstrous act, and who travelled into and out of the country around the dates of the murder of this child. All of the police searches in Nigeria and Benin failed to find any child matching Adam's description that had been reported missing. But with so many children being homeless on the streets of Benin City and in the towns across the geographic area the strontium isotopes revealed, it is likely that he will remain unidentified and that his killers will be still at large. If you know anything about the circumstances that led to this dreadful murder and the waste of this boy's short life, please, please come forward. Call 101 and ask to be put through to Scotland Yard and the Cold Case Review Team. This child needs his name back. He deserves justice. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash podcast. You can join in with a conversation about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting Facebook slash still at large podcast the theme tune is by duke deck an online music ai at dukedeck.com incidental music was written and performed by russell j white links to his catalog are in the show notes and some was created by me Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur Media Production. <laughs>